back to the bin. Hey everybody and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro and I am joined today by my good buddy, Scott H. Gardner. How's it going? It's, well, it's going. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good, man. We are not joined today by Dr. Bill Robinson, but short a short time ago I received a text message that said... On the field trip to the state capitol today, I sat in Governor Rick Scott's chair. Does that make <laughs> me the governor? I have a pick to back it up. Would have liked to have recorded tonight. Sniff. Hey, read this on the show as a first ever BTTB text message. <laughs> I don't know exactly what Bill thought he was accomplishing with that one, but he wanted it read and it's been read. You thought so, it would amuse me, and it did, so well done. Right. <laughs> of course, if he thought it would amuse you, perhaps he should have texted it to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is true. But whatever. He knew I'd just forget, that's why. Dr. Bill works in mysterious ways. <laughs> so, sadly, we don't have Dr. Bill. I can't find the life model decoy around here anywhere. <laughs> so it's just Scott and I going old school a little bit here. You just need the sound of some, something big falling down a hill, and there, there you go. There's your life model decoy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was listening to your uh, your Megacon show. <laughs> what was what was very cool about it was uh, when you got to the uh, the point where you were all sitting there eating. I started to get very jealous, thinking about you know back when we were in Disney doing that. And what made it even better is listening to you guys, and then you were like, you know what this needs? It needs Paul here to be doing it with us. <laughs> so that made me feel very good, and I appreciate that. Um, that when I'm not there, I'm uh, I'm still thought of. Definitely, yeah. I, Several times we mentioned you. They didn't all make the show, of course, but... <laughs> and they weren't all complimentary. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. But no, several times during the day we were like, oh man, I really wish Paul was here. So yes, you you were on our minds the entire time. I uh, believe Definitely. me, I would have loved to have been there. I think you really would have enjoyed it. It was it was a good time. Crazy busy, but it was a good time. Oh, we, we had a blast. I, I, it's one thing that really needs to happen is I have got to find some spare time to... I, I've been going out in the garage and just cleaning, you know, just finding boxes and going through boxes and stuff. And uh, I have made myself this mountain, this this giant pile of just stuff that I have every intention it's going to go on eBay and I'm going to get rid of it, you know, just to start cleaning out and making room and everything and trying to build up, you know, a little bit of a nest egg for things like, you know, conventions or whatever that I'd like to go to. But the problem is I've, you know, I've used up all my time gathering this pile. Now I don't have any time left to actually mm. list anything on eBay. That's the hard part is finding, you know, listing crap on eBay takes time. You know, and describing it the right way and... yep getting the right pictures up and all that. Yeah, it is. And, and figuring out what the right price to charge is because you don't want to scare people away. Right. Well, it's it's uh, there's a fine line between the right price as far as like what somebody will pay for both the item plus the shipping. And then it hit me the other day when I, I sent something in the mail to a friend that was, I mean, it was just a simple little thing. It was lightweight and everything, you know, and just a, a lightweight box. And the shipping on it, 
was more than I thought that it would be. So shipping has gone up again since the days when I was a regular eBayer selling comics. So I'm a little worried about starting listing stuff. And then I turn around and start, you know, going to the post office only to find that I'm like, you know, way undercharging people. And then I end up losing money or something. So I don't want that yeah. to happen. Either, I think so. you, I think you have to scope out the shipping expense before you do it and make sure you got yourself more than covered on whatever it is you're charging for shipping, mm-hmm. which is, you know, easier said than done, especially when you're trying to, uh, figure out how you're going to get the time to do all of this. That was one of the reasons why I stopped doing eBay um, quite some time ago, is that between, for for a time there, eBay changed, I, I don't know if it's still this way now, but for a time they changed to where, when I loved eBay best was when you could charge whatever the hell you wanted to. And I thought that I charged a, fit, a, a pretty fair uh, charge for shipping. But you could set whatever price you wanted to. and That's no longer the case? Yeah. Well, it wasn't for a time. It was not. It, they changed it to where you had to declare what you thought the item weighed, and then they would tell you what you could charge for the shipping. And when they did that, I just was like, well, screw that. I'm out. Because um, I, and I'm sure a lot of other people were doing the same thing, I used shipping to cover charged a fair shipping price, but I would also, you know, use that shipping price to cover my other fee, you know, as far as like the fee for listing, the fee that I expect item would sell for. And then once they started really gouging the hell out of you with PayPal, once they, once the eBay changed to where PayPal was the only form of payment that they would accept. So basically you're dinged three times by eBay when you list the damn thing, if the damn thing sells, and then when somebody pays you through PayPal, you're hit with fees for all three of those things. Well, I rolled those fees into the shipping cost. So basically, I was charging straight shipping plus the supplies for the shipping, you know, the box or the or the uh, you know, the uh, envelope whatever it was I would send and um you know, just like a minimal charge for like bag and board, whatever. And then rolling in those fees. Generally, uh, my shipping price, I think, was about like $3.99 or what, which, you know, I never had any complaints. But then eBay changed to where they would set the the uh, the shipping fee themselves. And it was a lot lower than that. Three, you know, a lot lower than three ninety nine. So I was like, well, I can't afford that. You know, when most of the books I was putting up, I would do a starting price of like, you know, ninety nine cents or something. Of course, when you do that, then you run the risk that it might actually sell at ninety nine cents. In which case, you're going to lose. Couldn't do that. So I stopped doing it. And if it's not that way, if they've gone back to where you can set any price you want for shipping, then great. You know, that'll be awesome. But if if they're still on the old system, then that makes me nervous because then what you have to do to cover your cost, then you have to sell in bulk where selling in bulk is great. If you've got like, you know, a stack of like a hundred shit comics, then selling bulk is awesome. But if you've got really good individual issues, then 
I've always found, for me anyway, that selling individual issues is the way to go as opposed to selling bulk. Because not everybody has the money to buy, you know, a, a huge run or a huge collection. But if there's that one issue that they just really need for their collection, then maybe they'll pay a little bit more for it. Mm-hmm. So that's just the way I've always preferred. I've always said if I was ever going to sell, you know, my comics, you know, in, in any great quantity, I'd want to sell them individually as opposed to, you know, in a collection or in a in a big run because, you know. Again, most people just can't afford to buy it that way. Even if it's a great deal, most people can't afford to buy it that way. Yeah, no, I, but, I get your point. It's the only the, what you do, or at least what I've seen on that is you, you know you get a run of shit comics, like you say, and then there's the one gem thrown in there to mm-hmm. make a book to get right. people to buy all the shit. It's just where you're moving your shit out, you know, getting rid of your bulk, but you're getting your money. Mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen that done and. Uh, you know, I, I have yet to actually make a purchase on anything like that, but I've seen it quite often where, you know, there's a run of 30 comics, and of those 30, there's one real gem in there. Yeah. I mean, I've bought comics that way. I don't, I, I don't think I've ever sold them that way. I would much rather sell that one really sweet comic individually, you know, for a really good price, and then, you know, all that other crap put it in a lot that's basically here you go crap cheap you know and sell it that way because i i think it's kind of dirty pool to sell you know here's a bunch of shit books oh by the way there's a hulk 181 in there you know it's like mm. well, what the hell's the point of that then then all you're doing is you're foisting a bunch of shit onto somebody when they don't want it it's that one book that they want well just sell that one book then you know yeah so I, i've never really understood that the only the only way that makes sense to me is if you're one of these sellers that just doesn't know anything about comics. So you're just listing like a lot, like here's a bunch of comics, you know, which I love lots like that too, because I've gotten some really good comics that way. I mean, I bought a, uh, an Avenger or excuse me, not Avengers, uh, uncanny X-Men. What's the first single issue after, the new X-Men came out. Was it 94? Yep. Yeah. I bought a 94 that way. It was in a, it was in a lot of crap and somebody had listed, you know, like here's, you know, like 50 comics, you know, whatever. And they didn't know anything about them, but they had a picture of the, the lot of comics like scattered all over the floor. And I was looking at the picture going, I think that's an X-Men 94. So I emailed the guy and I'm like, can you tell me this one X-Men, it kind of looks like, is that number 94? And he's like, yeah, it sure is. So I, I ended up buy, buying it for, I got it for like, I don't know, like 50 bucks or something. So then based on how many issues were in there, you know, if you broke it down like per issue, I paid something like 30 cents for an X-Men 94. It was crazy. But everything else in there was pure crap. <laughs> but, yeah, but a 50 bucks for that is still worth it. There you go. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, you know? And, you know, like I said, some people just want to thin out their collection and they can't justify throwing it out. So they just include it in the yeah overall exactly. package that way. Hello, podcast listener. My name is Russell Bragg. And I host a podcast called the DC Comics Presents Show. Every episode, I talk about the DC Comics Presents comic, starring Superman. I will be detailing all 97 issues, plus the four annuals. I will be spotlighting the DC character that Superman teams up with, 
Plus, I will be looking at the comic spinner rack to see what other comic books were on sale. So join me, Russell Bragg, for each exciting episode of the DC Comics Presents Show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's DCCPSHOW. All right, so uh, we got any uh, funny books to talk about today? We do. I don't know about what you think of yours, but I liked mine a lot. So I'll, I'll be curious to see what you think about it, too. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to put that one on the back burner because I got the Marvel today. <laughs> so I chose Inhumans number one from November of 1998, which was part of the Marvel Knights line that uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada developed and eventually led to Casada getting the uh, editor-in-chief job, uh, which he technically no longer holds, but in reality he does. So it's been, uh, what is that, 16 years ago already, and uh, he's still uh, going strong. The uh, cover on it is by Jay Lee. It's kind of a poster-type image of Black Bolt, flanked to the right by Medusa and Crystal, and to the left by Karnak, Gorgon, and Triton. It's the first issue of a 12-issue miniseries. Uh, the first thing that jumps right out at me is the tattooed face on Karnak, which I'm just not a fan of. Uh, I know some people you know, love their ink and all, but I'm just not a tattoo fan in general, uh, especially uh, on somebody's face. So not really my thing. Uh, then uh, from Mike's Amazing World, it's written by Paul Jenkins. The art is by Jay Lee. Letters by Dave Lamphere. Colored by Brian Haberlin and edited by Casada and Palmiati. Story is titled Sonic Youth. The opening page is three panels of Black Bolt flying, and each one gets a little close to him. And the narrator is discussing his life without being able to speak. And it talks about how in the Inhumans world, diversity is the rule of nature, with the Terrigen Mists changing everyone to their own unique potential, creating a duation to rule, due to that same diversity. And so, Black Bolt enters a holding area where his brother Maximus Damad is being held. Maximus rants for a time, finishing off by saying that Black Bolt murdered their parents. He recalls how that occurred, and it's kind of a convoluted part of the story where it seems like there was some sort of event involving the Kree and Black Bolt was forced to act in some sort of way which ultimately resulted in the destruction of an aircraft which I guess presumably killed their parents. The truth came out, he would lose his throne. And then we uh, jump from there to a view of Attilan which was set up on the Risen Island of Atlantis and it has a protective barrier over it to protect it from Earth's pollutants. But then we also see outside the barrier that there's humans uh, that tore apart the remains of Atlantis and that they still remain outside the barrier, uh, kind of ready to attack if they ever get the opportunity. Then we cut to Medusa, who's having her hair brushed by a handmaiden and considering the fact that she has living hair, it almost seems like a kind of a homoerotic scene. <laughs> and uh, she's she's worried about Black Bolt and how he deals with all the responsibilities that he has. <clears throat> then we cut again to a shirtless and maskless Black Bolt, and he may be totally naked because his legs are all just blacked out, uh, which really seems to be very unnecessary to me, but whatever. 
He's meditating as she narrates, and he's, she says how he easily turns away everything and everyone for fear of accidentally speaking. And then we cut to Black Bolt, and he's sitting on the throne. No, not that throne. The royal throne. <laughs> and uh, Medusa's at his side, and is laying at his feet, and there's a subject who's holding a baby, and he's asking about what should he tell her about the violence and the potential pitfalls of the future. And we see images of Maximus again, and Galactus, and the Kree. And then we cut to a seemingly drunk Gorgon, who's telling a joke to tattoo-faced Karnak. And Karnak is quietly standing there, worried about Black Bolt. He says that he's troubled by a secret. And he talks about his power to find the flaws in, any, in everything, except for Black Bolt, who doesn't have any flaws. Then we cut again to a dinner where Gorgon is telling the same joke he had been telling earlier. And Triton warns him not to tell the joke in front of Black Bolt, because I guess if Black Bolt were to laugh, the, shit, the whole city would be uh, just torn apart. And Medusa asks Triton not to talk as if Black Bolt isn't there, because he's really there, and it just kind of goes on a little bit there. Then Gorgon and Crystal have some words, which ends up in, with her throwing a drink in his fat face. And the issue ends with the question of, if Black Bolt could say one thing, what would it be? And then it just has the word, relax. Now, this is the first issue of a 12-issue miniseries, and... Really, nothing happened. <laughs> I, I guess the whole idea is, if you were totally unfamiliar with the Inhumans, it's giving you a little taste of each one of them. But if you were totally unfamiliar with the Inhumans, I don't see how this issue would give you a taste for wanting more. Uh, I think it's kind of, it's just kind of an empty, nothing of a story. To be honest with you, I'm not really crazy about Jay Lee's art style. I think he's a very talented artist, but I just don't like his style. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see it comes out sometimes, like the the opening shots of Black Bolt flying. I think you know you could see where he could draw in a style that I would like. And if he did, I think I'd enjoy his artwork very much. The problem is he doesn't. He dr- chooses a very dark, thick line, uh, almost muddy look to his artwork that I just don't care for it's just not my style uh so so we combine a story where not a lot happens with an art style that i don't like uh i'm just gonna jump right out and say for me this is a d i'm not gonna quite go with an f but it's a d because i just i remember reading this when it came out and thinking that it was a pretty entertaining series and maybe if I read the other 11 issues now, I would feel that way again. But just reading one issue and focusing on it, it did virtually nothing for me. So I'm curious what you think, Scott. See, that's the funny thing with this is that, you know, the, the other 11 issues could be absolutely fantastic. But for me, a guy who never liked the Inhumans to begin with I would look at this issue and I was flipping through it as you were uh, talking about it here and just looking at it. Um, yeah, I, I've never been a fan of Jay Lee. Isn't this the guy that followed up burn on Namor? Yes. Yes. He yeah. is. See, I, that was my first exposure to him. might be his first work for all I know, but that was my first exposure to him. And coming off of Burn style to this guy, I was like, what the hell is this? 
he had a really weird experimental style. It reminded me an awful lot of uh, of when Keith Giffen just went completely off the deep end and would draw a lot of stuff that I would spend time, like serious time, sitting looking at going, I'm sorry, I, what the hell am I looking at? I can't understand what these panels are supposed to be. Uh, and this isn't that bad. I mean, matter of fact, there's a shot of uh, Medusa here where she's uh, getting dressed and, and like zipping up or buttoning up her uh, whatever that purple outfit is that she has. Right there, Medusa actually looks a lot to me like, um, I'm trying to remember that, Mike McCone, who worked on like Titans and Exiles and stuff. It looks a lot like McCone right there, actually. And his uh, Crystal is not bad looking either. Who I, I like Crystal quite a bit. But as you say, nothing really happens in this. And I get the distinct impression. Again, this is just from a quick flip through of the issue. But I'm getting the distinct impression here that this is the exact kind of comic that I have complained about before. Where you take a team or a character or a concept that has been tried time and time and time again. And... It has merit, it has good ideas, it has good characters, it has potential, but for whatever reason, it just failed to catch on and and could not keep a series. And it goes away for a while, and then you bring it back, but rather than doing anything new or original, you basically try the same damn formula all over again, and then scratch your head when it doesn't catch on you know, for the umpteenth time that you've tried it. And just again, judging strictly by this first issue, this seems like the same thing again. This is, is it's an introductory issue. We get black Bolt. black Bolt doesn't talk, but he, you know, we're getting into his mind where he's thinking about, you know, his responsibilities as the ruler of these people and talking about, uh, Adelan and talking about the fact that he has to keep his own brother loose to, you know, his wife with the crazy hair and, you know, Gorgon and Lockjaw and all these different characters. And again, this has merit, but they're doing it in exactly the same style and exactly the same presentation that I've seen every damn time I've seen the inhumans. And I wasn't interested the last 1,500 times that they tried this, so why would I be interested in it this time? And I'm not. I have to be honest with you. I would have no interest in reading the other 11 issues of this, which is a shame because recently, you know, I was on that read-through of uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy in order to get myself up to speed on those characters in time for when the movie comes out later this year. And... Have you read the stuff with the Inhumans that happened between, like, say, um, uh, you know, Annihilation and like modern That's the, stuff uh, with War of the Kings? Yeah, books. I, yeah. I read the odd issue here and there. I never sat down and read it from beginning to end. Uh, there were some decent issues in there. Yeah, that, that for me personally, that is the first time. I have ever found these characters interesting. They actually went off into space and basically they decided to embrace their, their destiny and their heritage because they're there's, they have something to do with the, it was the Cree, right? Yeah. Well, basically the Cree 
as I understand it, they look to accelerate evolution, and right, that's what. And right. basically, they were seeding the world for their own uh, conquest eventually. So they actually went off into space and essentially ascended to that throne to where now the Inhumans were basically running the Kree Empire and something happens to Black Ball and so then Medusa has to take over and so then Medusa is basically head of state for the Kree Empire and you know then they have um, uh, the, the gladiator was basically you know one of their henchmen and everything and I just I really liked where all that was going, and you had uh, Crystal becoming the. Uh, I guess they actually the, got married, but yeah, she yeah they were they were. I guess she was technically his wife, but more like like his consort or something of of Ronan the Accuser, and I just I really liked where all that was going. Again, you know, for for me, for the first time, really making these characters interesting and doing interesting and original things with them that we'd never seen before in the Marvel universe and doing it in such a way that by making it interesting and, and doing some original things, then they could go back and revisit things that they had tried to do before that just didn't come across. And the, the thing that really struck me here was uh, with uh, Black Bolt's brother, you know, he actually becomes a really interesting character in that War of Kings stuff, you know, that spun out of all that because it was his brother is the one that actually figured out that when Groot says, I am Groot, even though that's what everybody's hearing, he actually is saying different things yeah, every remember, time he says that. I remember says reading that. that. It, was, it was actually kind of funny because he'd say, I am Groot. Oh, do you think so? That's really interesting that you, that's your theory. You right. <laughs> I, I just found that very amusing when that came out. And at first it was done as kind of a joke like, oh, this guy's really a nut job braced you know in, in canon more or less that no even though it may have started out that way that no maximus was right that Groot really is saying different things every time and i like that i liked how they built on that and then the inhumans end up you know building that much more into the whole mythology of marvel cosmic i, I really it really surprised me how much I ended up really liking that stuff for characters that I never cared about prior to all of that. So. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. But uh, I I generally like the humans as a concept, but I think it's a concept that that has rarely reached its potential. Right. Uh, I liked it in the Silver Age and how it was done then, with them being kind of this hidden hidden land that people couldn't find in the Himalayas and they, you know, just had this weird superhuman population. Uh, you know, I, I liked that. Then uh, I enjoyed, I'm trying to remember who the writer was, the series around 1975 uh, that George Perez drew. Well, see, it's funny that you mentioned that because when you told me tonight that you were going to be doing uh, Inhumans number one, that's the one I thought you were going to do. And it's funny because I have a, a small stack of comics in my comic room set aside specifically for Back to the Bins. And on that stack is an Inhumans number one, the one that you're talking about, you know, from the 70s. Well, so, I'd, I'd like to do that with you eventually and kind of see your take on that. Right. And it's been a long time since I read that, but I do remember liking that 
a lot back when I read it. And partially it's George Perez's artwork, and partially it was because I thought the story was interesting at the time. There was uh, Perez didn't draw the entire series. I think the series ran 12 issues, maybe. I've got uh, – I just reached over. Thankfully, my uh, my wire was long enough to allow me to go across the room here. I remember I've got it least... here. Let's see. Issue number one is – well, it is Perez. I didn't yeah, think he I, did the first issue. It's Doug Mensch was the Doug writer. Mensch. Doug okay. Mensch. I think Perez did the first four, and then I think the fifth issue was Gil Kane. Uh, and I'm not sure after that. Yeah, this is George Perez and Frank Chermonte is the anchor on it. I, I seem to remember that as my first exposure to Perez. Really? I, I don't know why, but for but I'm thinking that's before he was doing the Avengers. Yeah, I think so. Let's I, see. I, this this is yeah, nineteen October nineteen seventy five is the cover date uh, on this particular issue. Let's see. Let's take a quick look. I'm going to cheat here. We'll take a quick look at uh, at Mike's Amazing World and see if we can look at the time because I'm curious where this falls in with like. His work with like Logan's Run and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is before that, because I think Logan's Run was '76. Like I said, I, I think he did this, then he did the Avengers, then simultaneously with the Avengers, I seem to think he did his run on the FF. And I, I'm trying to remember, maybe Logan's Run might predate Avengers too. I don't remember when he started on the Avengers. So going strictly in release order here. Oh, wow. So Creatures on the Loose with Manwolf's actually one of his very earliest things. That's prior to this with the Inhumans. Okay. Yeah, Inhumans, number one. And then there's Power Man, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. And then he starts with the Avengers. So there's according to this, there's, there's a couple of, just a couple of things between... In humans number one in his first issue of uh, Avengers. So wow. Okay, well and this then, I can say with confidence that this was my first, the first time I noticed George Perez. Right. I may, well not this uh, in humans number one not the, not the the one we will eventually talk about in in greater length, <laughs> but that was the <laughs> first time I I noticed George Perez and and. That may have actually been my first exposure to the Inhumans in general. I may have Quartin. caught up on uh, their prior appearances afterwards. Right. I familiarized myself with them. But again, I I did like their initial Silver age aspect. And then I liked it when they got into the Bronze Age. And then they just, I don't know. They, I like them just seeming like kind of a more of a far out concept. And for them to have this gritty art style just takes away from it for me right so that's you know that that's the style that should be on a more of a street level character not on something so fantastic uh it, it's interesting I, I, who did you say it looked like he was trying to draw like jay lee um I, I don't know if he was specifically trying to draw like him but when when i first saw him um on namor the style reminded me – it didn't really look like Giffen's stuff, but oh, it just reminded said, okay. me of when Giffen 
just kind of went off the deep end and was doing that really, you know, thick lines and just a lot of panels where I would, I would spend serious time looking at the panel and, and finally just have to move on and discuss. Like, I, I, I don't, I literally don't know what I'm looking at here. I, I don't know if this is just a weird angle or it's a close up or, you know, there's a smudge a, on the page. I don't. Is that a you know. hand? Is it a foot? Is it a yeah, head? Exactly. I can't tell what the. You know what? Uh, when I looked at this, I didn't have that thought. I thought it looked to me like he was trying to be Bill Sienkiewicz and yeah. failing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd go for that because Sienkiewicz is you know he's he's one of those styles where it doesn't work for everybody not everybody likes that sort of thing i mean there there's even been some stuff of his that i've seen that i didn't particularly care for and he's another one that can sometimes be guilty of you'll you'll look at a page or you'll look at a panel and go i don't know what this is and so someone that's not as skilled as him trying to do the same sort of thing. Yeah. It can just come off as really off putting. And I'll say that, you know, his style has definitely improved between say Namor and, and this book, I think it's better, but yeah, when I first saw his stuff uh, on Namor, I just thought, wow, this is nineties in a horrible nineties way. It, It just was not appealing to me at all. Whereas at least this, it, it doesn't particularly appeal to me, but I, I can see the merit in it at the same time. Like I say, his, his women are beautiful. It's just I don't like that really dark, thick-lined, you know, the, the dark coloring combined with the thick lines, it just looks through the whole issue like, you ever see one of those movies that's like just ill-lit through the whole damn movie and after a while you just get frustrated with it? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't see... What you're trying to show me? Turn a damn light on. That's how I kind of felt like through this whole this whole issue. Like there's just not enough lights in this castle or something, you know? Yeah, and it, it like I said, it, it failed to me trying to create this. I don't know, like I don't. Part of the the appeal of the Inhumans to me was that they they were quirky, but they were family, and this almost seems like a. Uh, it's it's like well let's turn them into a dysfunctional family, right? And I mean that's more the writing than the artwork, but even the artwork kind of reflects that to me. It, it it's just it's uninviting. It's it's dark and it's it's like I don't want to go there, <laughs> and and that's not what I wanted from it. I want I want almost a Fantastic Four family type feel right. from them, and I'm not getting it in this book. Like I said, I'm getting more of a dysfunctional family. This feels more like the family on Roseanne. (laughs) I would not want to see them as superheroes. (laughs) I definitely don't want to see them in spandex. Oh, good Lord. Dude, I just ate not long ago. What are you trying to do? (laughs) But that's, I mean, that's my take on this. Like I said, I seem to remember reading... The whole series when it came out, though, and, and kind of liking it. So maybe, maybe it gets better as it goes along, or maybe I'm thinking of a different series. I don't know. They've had several miniseries. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong one. <laughs> they did. They also did one where they tried to create, like, legacy heroes, where they were having, at least for a couple of issues, new people being exposed to the Terrigen Mists, and, you know, it was kind of be the Inhumans the Next Generation. 
Uh, and I, I didn't care for that at all. Yeah, LeVar Burton with the visor and all that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care for that either. <laughs> and uh, evidently, none of those characters stuck around because I don't remember seeing any of them in the in the later stuff that I've read. Yeah, no, I don't think they did at all. Uh, just looking at the uh, the artwork, though, the picture that you had pointed to that you said looked good of uh, basically Medusa putting on her uh, purple robe or purple gown over her undergarments. The way it's drawn, the handmaiden is directly behind her, mm-hmm. and, it, and it almost looks like she's reaching across. It's really Medusa's arms that are doing it, but it almost looks like she's reaching across from behind and buttoning up for her over her boobs. It's kind of a little sexy homoerotic uh, <laughs> lesbian hubba, scene. Hubba, hubba, hubba. <laughs> well, plus I like I like Crystal too. There, were, I couldn't tell you who the artist was, but there was uh, some of the artists that worked on some of the the War of the King stuff, the one shots and what really drew her looking very sexy in that outfit because that outfit of hers is essentially like just a, a one piece clingy outfit, and uh, some of them could really do some nice stuff with her. She was uh, she was nicely done in that, but that's about all I got on it. Yeah, that's the other thing is just uh, Gorgon. He's drawn like really, really grungy and dirty, which <laughs> I guess for a guy with goat feet that makes sense. But uh, again, it's just like like I said, I look at this and I and I think I wouldn't want to be there, <laughs> which is not the feeling I've had in the past. The the hidden land always seemed like such a friendly place to be in. Except for Maximus the Mad. When did uh, when did uh, Craniac there? When did he get all the all the tattoos and everything? Was I that think, I think this may be, a... I think this may be where they came in. I don't think I don't know that they were there before this. He looks like a serious Darth Maul fan. That's what he looks like. Yeah, and it's like I said, I'm just not a, a fan of body ink. Uh, like I said, I'm sure there's people listening who have their tattoos, and you know what. To each their own. Enjoy what you yeah. got. But uh, it's just not my thing. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. But, uh, yeah, that's all I got on this one, too. So all right. I guess we'll move on. All right. Well, for me, this time around, I brought to the table a DC funny book from, gosh, what year is this? I can't even find a year in here. Is it on the? Oh, here it is. March 1984, this is Justice League of America, number 224. I have always loved the cover on this because although it's not credited at all, which I think is a real shame, this is basically, it's a DC version of the classic Spider-Man No More image where Peter Parker's walking down an alley and walking away from his Spider-Man costume that he's thrown away in the trash. Except in this one here, what we've got is there's some graffiti on the wall that says, who is Paragon? And we see this shadowy figure who, of course, is Paragon. And he's either walking toward or walking away from this uh, pair of trash cans. And in the trash is green arrows, hat, and bowstrings broken. Uh, We see one of his gloves sticking out of the trash. We see Red Tornado, just the torso of the Red Tornado. His arms are ripped off. His head's missing. 
we have Green Lantern's uh, costume, and the ring is still on the finger of, even though there's nobody in the costume. Superman's cape's just laying on this filthy alley floor, and then we've got Wonder Woman's magic lasso, uh, lasso and her bustier, which means that somewhere there's a topless Wonder Woman running around, and that's actually much more interesting to me than anything <laughs> that could possibly go on in this issue. I want to see that, but unfortunately they did not show that to me, but... <laughs> But yeah, I really like the cover on this one. The cover, as well as the interior art, are by uh, Chuck Patton and Dick Giordano. And Chuck Patton, the, the, Chuck Patton's the whole reason why I picked this issue tonight because he's probably not a name that uh, you know a lot of the younger listeners to the show would be all that familiar with. He really didn't do a whole lot of comics work. He uh, he kind of came in. He, he made a bit of a splash in the early to, to uh, mid-80s, and then, boom, he was gone. He went on to uh, do animation and things like that and uh, just never really did a whole lot of comics. It, probably the, his biggest claim to fame was his run on Justice League of America, although he did other projects. That was the one that, that uh, he was with the longest, I believe, and probably had the most impact on. But I always like this guy's art style. I think he has a really, really nice art style. It's kind of a, it's uh, it's somewhat similar to Alex Saviak. And I'm trying to think of who else it reminds me of. Maybe it'll come to me through the course of the story. But it, it's, it's very similar to uh, Saviak, but a little bit uh, cleaner, uh, cleaner and more... I'm trying to think of how I want to word it. A more like just dynamic comic style, even than Saviak, I think. But uh, helped a lot in this issue by the inks with uh, with Giordano. But anyway, the story starts out, and we've got Clark Kent and Hal Jordan are hanging out at this uh, this bar restaurant thing when uh, Ollie Queen comes to join them, and it's essentially the the scene starts right off saying something that i've said a lot before is like the, you never really see these guys i never really imagined the justice league hanging out together you know like after the 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 big bad is taken down and the mission's accomplished i never really imagined these guys spending time with each other and that's kind of right out of the gate what this story says is that hey we never really do this enough why don't we do this more often and it is kind of weird to see you know, Clark Kent, newsman, hanging out with Hal Jordan, you know, uh, test pilot. And it is it is kind of a strange thing, but it's also kind of cool to see them all hanging out together as well. By the way, the uh, story on this one, it's guest writer Kurt Busiek is the uh, writer on this one. So they're all hanging out, and somebody asks, where's Dinah? Meaning uh, Dinah, Green Lantern's uh, girlfriend, the Black Canary. And he says, well, you know, she ought to be here by now. So, you know, I wonder what's holding her up. So we cut to her, of course, to see what's going on. And she knows that she's running late for the meeting and everything. But she witnesses these uh, four street toughs. They have this guy that's wearing a trench coat and a, and a hat. They have him cornered in an alley and they're going to attack him. So she goes down to help the guy out. But before she can even land on the ground the guy in the trench coat and hat lays into the four tufts and just beats the holy hell out of them and is doing such a job on them that she becomes concerned for the tufts 
the guy just uh, he even says that uh he says uh i am your better he says no more than that i am your death so he actually intends to take these guys out so black canary confronts him and says hey you know you can't be doing that you know i appreciate what's you know what you're trying to do but you know these guys have rights and blah 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 and you can't just kill them so then she finds herself at odds with the man in the trench coat and he starts charging towards her. Well, she's a master of, I don't know, quack foo or whatever the hell her, her martial arts style is. So they, she's thinking, oh, this guy's, you know, he's not going to be able to stand up to me. And she finds that he uh, is actually better than her at martial arts. And he gets the upper hand. He actually flings her in such a way that she gets injured as she, uh, you know, gets out of the flip and, uh, and rights herself. So she decides to use uh, her superpower. She uses her uh, canary cry to try to take him out. But the thing has no effect on the man in the trench coat. Superman, you know, again, remember, he's uh, Clark Kent in this scene. All of a sudden, he hears the canary cry. And so he lets Hal Jordan and Ollie Queen know, hey, something's wrong. I can actually hear Diana's uh, canary cry. We need to go help her. So they rush out of the... Uh, the bar restaurant thing where they're at to come and assist so we cut back to the fight and black canary is getting her ass handed to her by the man in the trench coat when superman arrives and superman's pissed because this guy's essentially beating the hell out of a woman a woman who's a friend of his so superman uh he grabs the guy knocks him away from black canary and he's got him <laughs> he's holding on to like the front of his coat and he looks like he's going to knock the bejesus out of him, but he turns to make sure that Canary's okay. And when he does, the man in the trench coat uppercuts Superman and actually knocks him right out of the atmosphere. And Green Lantern and uh, Green Arrow, of course, are stunned by this, like, holy shit, you know, this guy just knocked Superman into orbit. So they come down to uh, come to Black Canary's aid. And the man in the trench coat, of course, he gets away. Now, I I always question, how the hell did he get away? Granted, he knocked Superman into orbit or whatever he did. But Green Lantern, what what did he do? I mean, it, it just it shows this panel where Superman's flying past Green Lantern and, and Green Arrow. As they're flying in, Superman's being knocked past them. And then the next shot is them in the alley assisting Black Canary. Well... Green Arrow can check on his girlfriend. What the hell was Green Lantern doing? Just standing by? Why did he let this guy just get away? But anyway, I Superman guess they were staring down. at Superman being... Because <clears throat> there is the panel with the both of them looking that way. Right. So maybe while they're looking at Superman, that's when uh, when he when he made his retreat. I guess. See, I, I just think Green Lantern. Yeah, Lantern's you would think they'd like, be on top of it. Yeah, come on, Green Lantern. You got a magic ring. Step up a little bit, you know? But anyway, Superman comes back and he's like, you know, the Green Lantern just doesn't. Well, he got away. <laughs> if I was Superman, I'd be pissed. I'd be like, dude, dude, you just let him get away. Anyway, so we cut to the uh, the Justice League satellite, which you can't ever have an issue of Justice League back during this time without them telling you about the whole 22,300 miles above the Earth thing. Every single issue. Every I love it. So they compare notes and they're trying to figure out, you know, who was this guy and what's his deal and everything. And Superman, during the, the brief tussle with this guy, actually managed to rip 
a pocket off of the trench coat that he was wearing, a pocket that contained all these notes. So Superman's looking over the notes. He can't make anything of it other than its mathematical equation. So he hands them to the Red Tornado, who, of course, is a living computer. Red Tornado says, well, has something to do with chemicals I don't really know. And Firestorm says, hey, why not let me take a look at it? And they're all kind of like, you? Well, all right. So they let him look at it, not knowing, apparently, that he shares minds with Professor Martin Stein. So Martin Stein, right away, he recognizes these formulas and he kind of puts them on the trail to where eventually using the uh, JLA computers, they figure out that these notes lead to a Dr. Joel Cocken, I guess is his name. So they decide to go and, uh, and check in on this guy and find out. Even though this was a full meeting of the Justice League, only Firestorm, Green uh, Arrow, and Black Canary go to call on Cocken. I don't know why they don't all go. It's kind of strange. And, of course, they show up and Cocken, who is the man that was in the uh, in the trench coat, now he stands revealed in his uh, super, uh, I guess his villain, super villain outfit, which is really kind of lame. And I, I don't really even know how to describe it to you. It's just, it's kind of generic. And essentially, he's now going by the name Paragon. And he says that, the deal with him is that anybody that comes within a certain proximity of him, he can not only duplicate their powers, he's actually better than they are. He understands their powers better. He's more powerful. He can defeat them because he's the superior uh, user of those same powers. So he qu pretty quickly takes out uh, Firestorm and he holds his own against uh, Black Canary and Green Arrow to a point where he eventually is able to capture them. And he's got them pinned up uh, on this wall with these unbreakable bonds like all the supervillains do. And he decides to unveil his big supervillain scheme where essentially he's known since birth when his powers pre, you know, when he was prepubescent, his powers were simply that he was just mentally better than everybody else mentally smarter mentally superior but then after puberty is when these superpowers kicked in where he's actually physically better than everybody else as well and so because he's tired essentially of dealing with all these people that are not as good as he is he's come up with this ingenious scheme whereby he builds this big super villainy machine thing that's going to take out essentially 90 percent of the earth's population leaving people that are just on his own level for him to uh, hang out with and be the leader of essentially. So that's, that's his big supervillain plan. So the really awesome part of this for me is when, uh, you know, right after he, he lays out his scheme, suddenly the roof of his lair gets ripped off and this awesome, awesome panel you've got, uh, Green uh, Lantern and Red Tornado come storming in as Superman and Wonder Woman are holding the roof up. And just, I love this pose of both Superman and Wonder Woman. It's just really dynamic. I mean, it's a very simple pose of them holding the roof, but it's just the way it's drawn. I really, really like Chuck Patton's Superman. I really wish he had done more Superman because I think he's got a really good handle on the character. So essentially all the characters, all the Justice League go up against Paragon. And at first he's got 
the advantage because he understands Firestorm's powers even better than Firestorm does. So he's able to like generate kryptonite chains to take out Superman and he's able to, you know, use all these powers to really hold his own against all the characters. But eventually they figure out that some of the uh, members of the Justice League have powers that Paragon can't duplicate, like Red Tornado's wind power, because, you know, of course he's an android. Um, Green Lantern's ring powers, because again, you know, he's using a magic ring. So they keep the, the players that he can duplicate, like Superman, at a distance to where Paragon, Paragon can't use their powers. And the people that he can't duplicate essentially end up taking him out. And uh, there's a great panel right toward the end of the book where they have just laid into him. They've managed to knock him out of the air. He's badly stunned. And Black Canary, just wanting a little bit of revenge on this guy, just walks up and just kicks him in the face, which is great. Which Wonder Woman actually scolds her for. She says, uh, well done, Dinah. But remember, we strike for justice, not vengeance. And uh, <laughs> she's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I just needed to get my licks in, which is pretty cool. And the issue's wrapped up with Firestorm essentially saying, uh, yeah, well, we got the guy, but uh, how are we ever going to keep him in jail? Which I thought was a nice touch because I think that a lot of times at the end of issues like this where they take down a particularly tough supervillain, like, now what are you going to do with them? You've, you've got them, but how do you keep somebody like Bizarro in jail or, you know, Mm. Uh, one of the other like really super tough ones, Amazo, for example. How how do you keep a guy like that, you know, under wraps? So they they touched on that on that uh, Avengers Avengers Spotlight. Was that the I always forget if that's the same of the series, the 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 cheaper series that they had come out with. Uh, but we we did it. Bill and I did it as uh, as our Avengers Spotlight issue, uh, the first one, and and the. It's Moonstone who became kind of a Graviton kind of guy, but he wasn't Graviton, or actually a right. Count Nefaria guy, but he wasn't really Count Nefaria. Uh, right. But but there's an issue. There's a, they talk in that there's a legal issue where basically they're just keeping him constantly drugged and gassed <laughs> to keep him from waking up and using his powers, and that he's got an attorney saying you know that's a violation of his rights and blah blah blah. But what else would you do with a guy who once he's awake he's going to escape? Right. Yeah, so, see, that's the thing is that I, I can remember reading stories like that where it would be revealed. You know, I, I remember it happened like in Superman and stuff where there'd be the particularly strong supervillains and they would show them in a story where eventually, you know, they'd, they'd escape to menace again or whatever. But when it would show like Superman going to check up on them while they were in stir. They were doing something like that. They would keep him, you know, drugged and sedated or gassed or unconscious or in a coma or something. And I always remember invariably, no matter how nasty the villain was, kind of feeling sorry for him. Like, what a crappy existence. You know, it's like, mm. I mean, it would suck enough to be locked up in, in jail, but at least, you know, in a regular jail, you know, you get three squares a day and you could watch TV and, you know, read or work out in the gym or whatever you know, write up appeals. These guys are just kept in like a vegetative stupor because they're too dangerous any, any other way or worse yet when they'd get sent to like limbo or the phantom zone or something like that. It's just like, ah, you know, 
But, little, you know, at, le- more... at least from the way they draw, and most of them get to keep their supervillain costumes. Right. <laughs> so, you know, they got that going for them. <laughs> what do you think of uh, of Chuck Patton's art? Do you like his art style? I do. I do. I I As I read it, I was thinking he is probably a guy who has uh, the ability to kind of form his style to whatever he's being asked to do. Because right. it looks like he's almost taking the DC house style a little bit. There's points where it looks a little bit to me like Kurt Swan, points where it looks a little like Jim Aparo, points where it looks yeah. a little bit like Dick Dillon. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm thinking that that's intentional, that he's trying to basically hit a house style here. Yeah, that's a good way to put it because I I was trying to think of – because I've always liked this guy's art because he he just – like I say, to me anyway, he seemed to just kind of just materialize on the scene kind of out of nowhere. And especially for Justice League of America at a time when the book just needed a little something. You know, uh, Perez had had left the book not long before and I can't remember who – followed Perez but it seemed to me like they're just you know they they needed somebody you know after you have Perez on a book it's like then you, you whoever you follow it with they 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 they're going to have to have a really good style or the book kind of falls back to whatever it was before Perez which is kind of what uh, was threatening to happen with Justice League and then Patton comes in and I really you know he's nothing like Perez but I really like his style mm-hmm. and I was trying to think, who does it remind me of? And it is. It's it's kind of an amalgam of a lot of different styles. I do see a lot of Alex Saviak in here, but I also see, like, a, especially, like, the shots of, say, like, Green Arrow as Oliver Queen in the very beginning of the book. It kind of reminds me of, like, when Jurgens was working on Warlord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, there's a little uh, of that. Maybe even a little Mike Grell in there. Um, the first yeah, shot of uh, Paragon in his, you know, when in on the computer in his regular identity, when they mm-hmm. figure out the connection, that's the one that looks a little bit like Dick Dillon to me. Let's see when they show him when he's on yeah. the computer screen. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I could see that in an issue of World's Finest. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, the splash page, the waitress, she looks a little like Harpo Marks with boobs. <laughs> Let's see, splash. Yes. Yeah, you're right. She is not an attractive woman, but she does have boobs. She uh, looks to me like, uh, right around this same time, there was a story with, uh, the, uh, what were they called? Not the wrecking crew, the demolition team. The demolition team in Green Lantern, and she looks like Rosie the Riveter from the demolition <laughs> team. Uh, you you mentioned how you know it's kind of cool to see them hanging out in their secret identities, which it is. But I would just think you know the more people you have who look like dead ringers for the Justice League who are hanging <laughs> out together, yeah, the more they're putting their own secret identities at risk. I used to think that all the time with the Titans. Because you would frequently see uh, uh, Dick Grayson out on a date with Starfire. Yeah, and you would She's think, just a very how stupid girl. are these people that they can't figure this out? You know, 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, she's really tan, but she's got this huge, huge head of hair and green eyes. Right. <laughs> she's not fooling anybody. There's no secret identity because she calls herself Corey Andar. <laughs> now, am I wrong in thinking that, that Kurt Busick was, was one of the ones in the post-crisis continuity of, of JLA that did some stories with the, the civilian identities of the heroes in that. Cause I remember the one where they all get split in two between their superhero identities and their civilian identities. W- wasn't that a, a music story? If I'm not mistaken, I'm you, not sure. You know the one I'm talking about? No, no, I don't. It was this really good story where, um, I, I can't remember how it happened, if it was magic or what, but the members of the Justice League all got essentially it was it was like in that episode of Star Trek where Captain Kirk gets split between you know good Kirk and bad Kirk. I'm Captain Kirk. Yeah, exactly. It was the same kind of thing, except all of the the members of the Justice League all got split into two, and one half was their civilian identities, and then the other half was the hero identities. And for some of the characters, it really messed them up because like Batman, for example, Batman essentially was revealed to be like a hollow shell. He was he was nothing because there because he really wasn't two distinct people. Mm. And like with Plastic Man, his civilian identity of Eel O'Brien started to revert to his criminal ways before he became plastic man kind of thing. It was a really good story. And I, I'm almost positive that's a Busick story, but I'm not well, sure. And Busick did follow up at some, I don't know if it was immediately after or if there was somebody in between, but he did follow up Grant Morrison right. on JLA. So that could be during that run. But I know that, that the, the idea of them as more of a, of more of a team of buddies. That was more an idea of, at least to my mind anyway, that was more of an idea of that incarnation of the justice league than this ever was. Mm-hmm. Cause I can remember as a kid thinking, you know, that here, these guys are a team and they're always together, you know, in this title, but you never really saw them kind of hanging out. And that's why this was, you know, digging into this one was kind of, a treat because here you were getting that where you really didn't get that very often. Cause I can remember the few times where a member of the justice league in, you know, the justice league book would go to like, say Superman and, you know, and talk to him when he was Clark Kent. I always kind of, kind of got a thrill out of that just cause that wasn't something that you really saw. And I didn't always have the impression that maybe not every single member of the league actually knew that he was Clark Kent. So they were all on this team together, but didn't necessarily know each other's secrets and and all that sort of thing. So here, seeing that that actually is the case with at least the three of them, that they do know who each other are, I I thought that was kind of cool. And just seeing them hanging out. But it's also kind of odd because, granted, as, as Superman, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern, they're all teammates and they're all in the Justice League. But seeing them this way in their civilian identity... What the hell do Clark Kent, uh, Oliver Queen, and and Hal Jordan? What do they have in common? Which was, I, I would think that would be a question of anybody that might recognize them out in public like this. 
I mean, that would be, are they prepared to answer that question? If somebody just suddenly came up and said, Hey, Clark Kent. Hey, I know you from the nightly. Hey, I didn't you know how, how do you know how Jordan, you know, are they prepared for those questions? Or, you know, are they, do they have a, a prearranged answer for anybody that might try to call them on, you know, <laughs> just beat the crap out of them. <laughs> <laughs> that person just disappears. Never to be heard from again. Uh, the, this, the shot that you talked about of them lifting the roof off the building, I agree. It's really cool that the book itself almost had a feeling to me of a more sophisticated story, but it reminded me of the Super Friends a little bit. Yeah. And and, and that particular shot, I can almost hear the theme music when I look at the picture. <laughs> I do love that shot, though. Superman looks awesome right there. They both really do. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great that is a great shot. I don't I I'm not a I don't like Paragon's costume. I think it looks kind of dopey. No, uh, I, I liked him better when he had the uh, fedora and the overcoat with with the mask on underneath. I thought he looked kind of cool there. He looks like somebody that I just can't quite place. <laughs> you know, like like a character that I've seen. <sighs> Space Ghost. He he does look a lot like Space Ghost. Isn't there a, 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 a character in Marvel? Is it the answer? Maybe that's who I'm thinking he looks like. I don't know. I have to look up that. There's a character. I think it's a Marvel character called the answer that I think maybe that's who he looks like. It's like a Spider-Man. Is it a Spider-Man villain? I don't know. I don't... Uh, here we go. The uh, Waiting for my screen to... Refresh. The answer is the name of three fictional comic book characters owned by Marvel Comics appearing in the Marvel Universe. So, let's see. There's Aaron Nicholson, a criminal genius, former member of Kingpin's crime family, and he fights Spider-Man, but they do not have him. Then there's two other people with that character name, but they don't have a photo, which makes it a little bit more annoying. He appeared in Peter Parker number 91. Which is right around this time, 1984. He doesn't look exact. This is definitely who I was thinking. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's. You recognize this guy now? Now, now that you, yeah, now that you sent it, I've seen him before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, great... a, it's a little similar because he's got the big sleeve. Luckily for him, he avoided the purple of the answer, and yeah. and and the kilt. But uh, yeah, from, I, from I definitely waist, see a similarity there. From the waist up. Actually, from from that funky belt of his, he looks like the love child of like the answer and the pariah from the Crisis on Infinite Earths, because he's he's got the poofy sleeves and the and the big like WWF belt around his waist and all that. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre look. But yeah, anybody, if you're wondering who the hell the answer is, if you're like, oh, that sounds familiar. If you've ever seen the the a great image of the answer is uh, Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man number ninety three on the cover, he's got a bomb in one hand and he's got the black cat in the other and he's essentially telling Spider-Man that uh, you can either defuse the bomb or you can catch the black cat who he's about to drop off a building but you can't do both, so he's he's basically taunting Spider-Man, and beyond that I don't know where again I I don't really remember but. I'm surprised I even remember him from this one off, but I, I just I thought he had kind of a cool looking outfit, I guess is why I remember him. 
this was just an era of Spider-Man that I really liked. But I wonder if Paragon ever appeared again. I really don't know because he's an interesting idea because he's essentially he's he's a lot like a Mazo because isn't this kind of a Mazo's uh, well the super adaptoid yeah so I'm wondering if he ever popped up again because I could see him because there was a character similar to this in the Morrison run the guy that uh, he could like he had like computer programs or something they could plug into his head so that he could defeat everybody the hell is that guy's name? And then remember, Batman ends up taking him down because he puts in a computer program of Stephen Hawking into the guy's head to take him out. <laughs> just messed that. up. According to Wikipedia, uh, he appeared in this issue, and then it said after his single appearance, Paragon went unseen for more than two decades real time. However, he has recently become a recurring opponent of Superman. Although one who, in certain circumstances, was seen to help the Man of Steel. Hmm. I don't remember that. Nor do I. But it says he appeared in Superman 675 in April of 2008. Uh, I think I was. I had stopped reading by that point. Stopped reading Superman. I mean. Huh. Yeah, I don't. I don't recall ever reading that issue. But uh, but he did eventually appear again. I mean, and that's. <laughs> That's, I, I think good writers do that. They'll they'll find characters that haven't appeared for a while, and even if even if they're not great characters, they can always be improved upon. Uh, right. Rather than just you know you, you see certain things like for example we were talking about the Inhumans earlier. You're gonna dredge up Maximus the Mad every time. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, there's there's definitely some some stuff to be mined there because he's the king's brother and. You know, on the one hand, he's crazy, but on the other hand, you know, it's almost like that Loki kind of feel where, you know, some sometimes he's helping you, sometimes he's hurting you and getting a kick out of it both ways. But he can't be the only villain ever all the time. <laughs> so you get, you know, you, you get, go back into the archives and find characters like this or that haven't been used in 20 years and, you know, update them a little for a modern audience. And, and now you got a new, basically a new character. Right. Which which I think, you know, a lot of writers fail to do that, and I think it's a mistake, especially in this current day and age where there are so few new characters that are worthwhile coming out. You know, I, I, th- I think they'd benefit from looking into the archives and finding guys that, you know, that they own but haven't been used in a while. I agree. I agree. Because there's, there's a lot of, like, just one-off villains like this, kind of a, you know, throwaway villain that uh have potential that they could go back and and pull him out and reuse him like that because this guy i mean you know just the simple fact that he could hold hold his own against superman makes him an interesting character makes him a threat to the entire team Mm -hmm. and they have to get very inventive in the way that they they end up taking him down in this and and if you're a uh you know if you're a creator and you're concerned about, well, I'm not going to create this new character and then have them own it. And, you know, I'll, I'll just write the characters that they have and then I'll go over to Image and write my new characters. This way I can own them if they ever hit it big. You know, if right. that's your mindset, and I think that is the mindset of a lot of creators. Yeah. Uh, then, you, you know, you could say, okay, that's fine. But, you know, I, but I have this character that you haven't used in 20 years. I'm going to use him now because I couldn't use him anyway as, as a personally owned character. 
but I'm you know by doing this I'm going to reinvigorate the series by bringing in somebody you know that that most of the readers won't be familiar with. Right. I, I think there's something to be said for doing that, and uh, it, it should be done more often. Now on on the shot, page twenty of the uh, book, there's a shot where you see Paragon from behind, and then uh, he facing him are Firestorm, Wonder Woman, and Superman. Mm-hmm. Superman really has a pinhead in that shot. <laughs> He's got this big, big body and this tiny little head. Let me see what page is this? Page twenty. Yeah. Just Let's before he see. wraps him in the kryptonite chains. That's one one of the shots. I just don't care for the the way that it looks. Superman just looks. Oh, and they're all charging. Yeah, yeah, he does. In my issue, his hair's not colored properly. Either, yeah, it almost so looks it's... like he's blonde. Yeah, but that's partially partially because I guess they're having like the light highlights or whatever, but also because the yellow S on the back of his cape is up by his head too. Yeah. I like where Superman's trying to defend himself from the blast of Firestorm's energy that uh, Paragon's shooting at him. And he's using his cape very like Batman style, the block. Mm-hmm. That's actually pretty cool. I like that one. I could have lived without uh Paragon whipping up kryptonite chains though. This was, <laughs> But this was that era where every every time you needed to take Superman off the table, oh, oh, here you go, here's a little kryptonite. It's like, oh, come on, really? I mean, granted, he didn't just find it laying around like it was all over the DC universe during this time. He actually invented it with Firestorm's power, but still. Yeah. I mean, how does this guy know the the you know the atomic makeup of kryptonite in order to create it like that? I mean, I guess he's supposed to be some super science whiz, so I guess maybe he knows the, uh, you know, the periodic table with kryptonite on it and all that. But still, I like the uh, the way Wonder Woman is carrying Superman off after that, mm-hmm. cradled in her arms, like you know, like a baby almost. <laughs> Come on, baby! I really do like this art, though. It's yeah, really nice. I do too. It, it's uh, it's got a very Unlike the Jay Lee art, it's got a very comfortable feel to it. Yeah. Well, Giordano, I mean, he he was always one of my favorite inkers, especially on Superman. So him uh, teamed with Patton, they're they're just a, I mean, they're a really good fit for one another. You know what? This actually looks a lot to me like if you look at that very last page, next to last panel where Wonder Woman is standing next to Black Canary. It actually, maybe the feel, that nice, comfortable feeling that I get from this art is because it reminds me a lot of the promotional art that you would see through uh, Garcia Lopez from this era, like promoting be his name, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, toys or T-shirts or, you know what I mean? Because yeah. I... Yeah, I, I could see it. It's very similar. And I think that's because I, I think Giordano inked a lot of that stuff, didn't he? I'm not certain, but he definitely could have. And it definitely it, it has that, like you said, the, you know, just a nice, smooth, comfortable feel. Mm-hmm. It does. It looks not, really nice. Not overly detailed and yet not cartoonish. Right. Now, that's, yeah. that's generally... 
you know, I mean, I, there's there's not one art style where I say, okay, that's it, that's the one I like. But that's often what I look for in the style right. is, is, you know, a certain comfort level. And like I said, certain street level things, now you can get a little darker. Or magical things, you can get a little darker. But for just a straight out superhero story, I, I don't want the really dark feel, the thick, no. heavy lines and stuff. No. Not with something like the Justice League. Yeah, exactly. All right. I, at this point, we'll pretend I said something really funny, and then we'll go out of the episode. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, or, or not, but whatever. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.